So funny story, uh, different pastors have different preferences. Some get their microphone, turn it on, and they let the control board run it. Others, like myself, not because of any distrust on those behind the board, uh, we turn our own on or off. And part of that was sealed for me, and this explained why it was unplugged. This has nothing to do with the rapture, but you all get a kick out of it. When I was in fifth grade, we hosted at our church, um, the church was, the, 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 our church building was used to host the venue. It was really, a, it was, a, it was, it may have been a homeschool specific thing only because it was during the mornings. I can't remember if it was summer or not, but the whole point is it, it was a writing conference for, um, for, for kids, for, for school age kids and different uh, Christian, it was a Christian organization, it was a writing conference, came into this, and I'll just never forget, we all started out in the same place, and you know, this main, I can't remember who the author was, but he, he was a, at that time, was a, a very well-published Christian author of, um, when I say kids' books, I don't mean little kids' books, like um, elementary age, you know, kid chapter books, and uh, he finished whatever he was saying, you know, we're, 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 they're giving us announcements we're going to dismiss, and all of a sudden, there's this crazy noise that starts blowing up on the sound speakers, and we're all going, what is that? And then after a couple seconds, we all realize it is a toilet flushing <laughs> because he forgot to turn his mic off or the board forgot. And even though in fifth grade, I had no clue God was going to call me to ministry, I certainly had no clue I would ever be a pastor. It left enough of a mark that even if I know my microphone is off, I still unplug the cord if I am mic'd up and I have to go to the restroom. So... That's why it didn't work. Sorry about that, everybody. Scars from fifth grade. It's amazing what happens at 12 years old and how it impresses you. All right, you have got a reference sheet tonight. Uh, it's by no means remotely close to everything I could have put together, but it, it gives you some basic definitions of a couple key terms that we've mentioned last week and we'll mention this week. It gives you a, a brief uh, a brief word on, uh, remember last week we, we came back after going through Revelation and we said, you know, there's a couple questions, broad questions, how do, how do we broadly interpret Revelation? And there's typically four main camps. You can see those there. In reality, uh, I, I, would, I would lean mostly in the futurist camp, though I would acknowledge with many that um, somewhat syncretistic in the sense that while most of Revelation is prophecy that will be fulfilled literally in the future, we certainly recognize there are symbols for things that, that do point to spiritual truths that are timeless for all believers. There are some things that were true back in the lifetime of John and the original authors, re, uh, the original readers. So uh, you've got that definition there. And then we came to last week, the last half, how do we understand the thousand years reign of Jesus that's mentioned in Revelation 20? Again, there's three major views, post-millennialism, that uh, the millennium is a, a reference to the age of the church, and the church is going to go and be so effective in taking the gospel to all places uh, in the world, and there's going to be such an overwhelming response that gradually over time, the world is just going to get saved, and it's going to be a golden age where Christ reigns through the church, that's the millennium, and then Jesus will return for the second coming. Here's my visual for you. Jesus comes, He dies, He rises, and the church starts right here, Acts 1. These are the four Gospels, Acts 1. This is post-millennialism, church age in the millennium, the end of which all or nearly all of the whole world will be saved, depends on which 
post-millennialist you're reading, Jesus comes back, and then you've got judgment in eternity. Uh, if, in that sense, uh, the, the, the person espousing that view holds to a literal return, um, many of the people we read about in church history did. Post-millennialism, though, in the last 150 years, as you've had different offshoots of Christianity, what we might call today progressive Christianity, what we might have said 50 years ago, the social gospel, where essentially Christianity is not only talk about sin, judgment, salvation, we talk about um, Sermon on the Mount, doing good for the poor, you know, things like that would, would maybe not see a little return of Jesus. But um, this is post-millennialism. Uh, we talk about amillennialism. Amillennialism simply says there is no, the thousand years is not anything literal uh, or even symbolic. The thousand years is just simply another way of referencing the church age. And in, in true amillennialism, uh, the, the tribulation, there's no literal seven years of tribulation. The tribulation is referencing um, what happens throughout the church age. And so it's very similar to postmodernism. In fact, if you go back historically and you really want to do your research from uh, about St. Augustine, who, who really started moving pastors and theologians in this way on a major level to, um, you know, to the last two or three hundred years, it's hard to distinguish. And a lot of reason that we distinguish it now is what I just mentioned, that with postmillennialism in the late 1800s, it became kind of hijacked enough by those who would deny a literal Jesus, a return of Jesus, or a bodily resurrection, that those who still believe Jesus does return literally, and we are resurrected bodily, and there's final judgment and a new heaven and new earth, but they just don't see uh, the seven years of tribulation play out the way uh, um, premillennials would, uh, came to be called amillennial. And this is, you know, you can look at it on your cheat sheet, by the way, your reference sheet. I didn't, I didn't have the time to try to draw these pretty pictures in Microsoft Word for you, so I just put church age, dash, 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 dash. So you can kind of see that on your, on your sheet. Tried to help you out there. Then we come to, and this is where we ended last week, premillennialism. Premillennialism is the idea, looking at the thousand years, <clears throat> that Jesus returns, Revelation 19, the thousand years... He returns prior, and then that thousand years of Revelation 20 is when Satan is bound in the abyss, meaning that he has zero influence. There is zero deception of Satan on this earth. Jesus reigns on this earth under uh, in this present universe. He reigns on a restored throne of David in the city of Jerusalem. The saints are resurrected bodily. Now, I will tell you within premillennialism... Um, who is resurrected at the beginning of the millennium? There, with any of these views, there's all sorts of flavor of it's not. We can't just simply say, well, everybody who's premillennial all sees it the exact. There's a lot of variety. But but the basic idea is that some portion of the saints, if not all the saints, are resurrected, reign with Jesus at the end of the thousand years. Satan's released. There's a final battle. Before, before the millennium is Jesus' return. Before Jesus' return is a literal seven-year tribulation. And so it plays out in one of a couple ways. What you see here are the three-slash-four primary ways the rapture, that is the return of Jesus to rescue His saints, takes place. Because when it comes to these views on the millennium, uh, the post-millennial and the amillennial, there is no view of the rapture. 
because Jesus, if Jesus comes back, he just comes back when it's time for the second coming. There's not a literal seven-year tribulation. and the, So when we talk about rapture, we are talking about nearly all times. I won't say always. I won't be absolute. There may be an amillennialist who has a view of something. But primarily, we're talking about those who fall in the premillennial camp. There's three primary views. Of the, or there's three slash four primary views. The top here is what we would call pre-trib. Here's the Gospels. Jesus comes. Jesus dies. Jesus ascends. This is the church age. This is where we live now. And there is coming a moment. I, I didn't know how small this would be, so I couldn't write it. There's coming a moment where, where two things are going to happen. Jesus is going to not return all the way, but he's going to come and take all of the church out of the world and this enables the capital A Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the little horn, to arise in accordance with Daniel to strike a seven-year peace treaty with Israel, which inaugurates these seven years of tribulation. Uh, during this time, you will see the, the, seal, uh, the seals, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. In this time, at the three-and-a-half-year mark, there will be the abomination of desolation. In this time, there will be 144,000, whether that be literal or whether it be a symbol for the entirety of the Jewish people, a turning of Jews to faith in Christ. The end of which Jesus comes back, this is the second coming. By the way, in all three of these, that arrow is the second coming. At the second coming, the armies of the Antichrist and the false prophet are defeated. The Antichrist and false prophet thrown in the lake of fire, Satan bound in the abyss, the millennial kingdom, literal, and then at the end of the millennium, Satan's let out. The final, final battle occurs, judgment happens, and then what we're looking at last Sunday and these next two Sundays on Sunday morning, eternity, new heaven, new earth, eternity takes place. This is the pre-trib position. This is what we would call mid-trib and or pre-wrath, which they are similar and they're also distinct. Uh, here's same Jesus, Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, age of the church. The key difference here is the beginning of the tribulation where the Antichrist arises and inaugurates the treaty. The church is not pulled out then. If you are mid-trib, then at the middle mark, three and a half years, abomination of desolation, the church is raptured out. Uh, or if um, that'd be the mid-trib, if you are what's called pre-wrath, the distinction would be mid-trib is simply the church gets raptured out at the halfway point. Pre-wrath is at whatever point the wrath of God is poured out in the bowl judgments. The church is removed prior to that because they do not, as, as a, someone in the, uh, as a saint, as a child of God, you do not undergo wrath. That could be uh, the, where there's a variety of opinion is you might have someone who says, well, those bowls of wrath are poured out two months after the midway point. And you'll have some who say, well, the bowls of wrath aren't poured out until there's 45 days left in the tribulation. So there's a variety. But essentially, the idea is that somewhere during the tribulation, the church is raptured out, is removed. The bottom here is what we would call post-trib. Again, same thing, life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, age of the church today. The Antichrist rises up. Uh, there's a treaty established. There's seven years of tribulation. And the rapture of the church happens at the second coming of Jesus. They're the same event, so it happens after the seven years of tribulation. And you go, well, 
Rapture, something may say, rapture means, how can that be? How can you say rapture after? Rapture means before. Well, uh, not technically. The term rapture is from the Latin word uh, uh, rapio, which was used, means to seize, to take out. It's the Latin word that was used by Jerome in the Vulgate to translate the Greek word that when you read your Bible in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, it says that we are caught up in the air with Jesus. So the term rapture, truly, linguistically, the term rapture just refers to the church being caught up to Jesus. In that sense, does it happen before the tribulation, sometime during the tribulation, or is the church caught up to Jesus and believers resurrected after the tribulation prior to the millennium? These are the three basic views that are espoused. Now, before we dive in fully deeply, let me just give you this. On your sheet, you see premillennialism. Inside of premillennialism, you have two larger camps. You have what's called historic premillennialism. Uh, you find this, the historic premillennialism. Now, this isn't, I don't know if this is on your sheet or not. I can't remember what I put. Um, historic premillennialism is the dominant view of the first 300 years of church history. It's what you read in the earliest of the church fathers, which means those who were directly discipled by the apostles. Uh, historic premillennialism believes that Jesus returns prior to the millennium. Historic premillennialism is post-trib, meaning the church stays on this world through the tribulation and the rapture happens at the return of Jesus. Uh, that during the tribulation, God will purify His church. Uh, there's going to be a varying level of historical premillennialists will either see Old Testament Israel and New Testament church as one and the same, or some will see that there is a level of distinction between them where some things carry over and some things are distinct. Uh, there's going to be a balance between the symbolic and literal aspects of Revelation while really emphasizing what the book meant to the original recipients. This is historical premillennialism. The other big camp is what we would call dispensational premillennialism. Now, when I say that word, and this goes back to the top of your reference sheet, dispensationalism is going... Dispensational uh, eschatology in times is going to be undoubtedly what most, if you have grown up in a Bible, Baptist, or Pentecostal background, if you are over the age of 50 and really was familiar with a lot of what was taught in the 60s, 70s, in the 80s, if you have read the Left Behind book series or listened or are familiar, all of that dispensationalism was the predominant end times view that you are going to be familiar with. Uh, whether, you, whether you are or aren't, in fact, most will be familiar with it, but most are not likely dispensationalists. Here's why I say that. Dispensationalism is an entire theology. It's not just a view of the end times. It is an entire theology. It is an entire way of, in, of reading and interpreting the whole Bible. So it, it has much broader... Um, it's kind of like today when, when peers of mine who are by and large fully Baptist will go, man, I'm, yeah, I, you know, asking, are you Calvinist? Like, oh, I'm a Calvinist. 
What they mean by that is they, they believe a little more heavy-handed in, in God's predetermining of people for salvation. But my dad's favorite question with those guys is, goes, well, do you believe in infant baptism? I go, well, no. Do you believe in a, in a Presbyterian form of church government as opposed to congregational government? They said, no. And my dad will always mess with them in class. And I go, well, then you're not Calvinist. Because Calvinism, if we're being honest, is way more than just simply God's sovereignty and man's free will and what's the interaction in salvation. There's way bigger than that. Same with dispensationalism. It's way bigger than just in times, but it is what many of us are familiar with, and I'll come back to that in a second. Um, but dispensational premillennialism, the, I, the idea... I'm trying to think exactly how far in the weeds we're going to get here for a second. Someone said a lot of weeds. <laughs> a lot of weeds. Well, it's just a matter of when we go through the weeds here. Uh, all of dispensationalism is an interpretive framework for Scripture. In that framework, um, historically, dispensationalism has seen seven, what we would call dispensations, seven eras in human history uh, where in those different eras, the level to which God has revealed Himself and interacted with humanity is different. Salvation's not different by grace through faith, but the level to which God reveals Himself and humans interact with Him and are held accountable for their level of knowledge is different. In that framework, in dispensationalism, there is a hard, historically, there is a hard and fast separation between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament multi-ethnic church. There is a hard separation such that if we're, and I'll get, use this example, if, if we're reading a prophecy in the Old Testament, maybe something like Zechariah 12 or 14, that's speaking of a future kingdom in which God's Messiah reigns on the throne of Israel and, and this promise. That promise is to Israel, not to the church. Now, there's other promises that are to the church, but, but there's, there's this complete and total distinction and so in that framework, when, when in dispensationalism, those who, who espoused it, when they look here, major, historically, that is where you get, that is really where you get historically in the history of church, the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture, removal of the church. And the reason for that is because the tribulation is built on Old Testament and God finishing His dealings and work with Israel and as long as God is working with the church, He's not working with Israel, so the church must be removed so that God can finish the work that He started with Israel. Now, someone, if you're a hardcore dispensationalist and you think I butchered that, it's not because I intended to. I'm trying to do my best because I, I, I'll be honest, um, just for a second, uh, this is where the end times can get so rabbit hole-ish because there is no end to how many people have an opinion and varying level of all these different things they are. And, and different, I, I think, let me just, this is, this, I, I think, so I'm 35. I'm of a very different generation than that which came of age in 60s, 70s, and 80s when this was 
mega pop, okay? Every generation has their like theology things they're gonna fight about. My generation looked at everybody who was older than us fighting about the end times and went, that's dumb. Jesus comes back, we're good. And we decided to go fight about other stuff. <laughs> and the next generation behind it, same thing. So, so in, the, in, in the case of that, when it comes to my study and in-depth in theology and how far down, um, I, I have, I'm not personally a dispensationalist. I, I do know that. I'm not. There are things I agree with that are espoused in dispensationalism. There are things that I think are a stretch, and that's why I'm not. In fairness, there's a whole lot there that I have not remotely scratched the surface on, and I always want to present someone else's opinion fairly. Um, so historically, this is where oops, the pre-trib comes because the church needs to be removed in order for God to finish what He started with Israel. And then, and then in really historic in dispensationalism, the millennial kingdom is, is, is going to be of a very Old Testament Jewish flavor because that is the fulfillment of all of God's Old Covenant promises. Now, having said that, dispensationalism got its start, and it's, and it's important. I'm going to give you a little history lesson. This is why I say I knew going in tonight, we may not get through everything, and that's great. We're going to teach it. Just, I told you last week, this will feel a little bit more like a systematic class in seminary. And here's why. I, I, my goal, and I'll, I'll own where I stand here later, my goal tonight and through all this is, and hear me clearly, it is not to convince you you're wrong and I'm right about where the rapture falls. That's not my goal. Because at the end of the day, if we are really intellectually honest, there is great room for this question. And this, where the rapture happens, is actually not a primary issue of Scripture. The primary issue of Scripture is the fact that it happens. I won't fight you because I don't think it's a biblical fight to have and disagree as brothers and sisters in Christ over, over if we disagree when the rapture happens. I will fight to my grave the fact that Jesus does come back and rescues his saints, because that is undeniable in Scripture, cover to cover. Okay? So my goal, and, but, but, but here's what I also see. I recognize where today my other concern, or my concern is, Part of what has happened today, this, historically dispensationalism, when it got into America in the late 1800s, the three, the three branches of, of church that it took strongest root in, Baptist, Bible Church, Pentecostal. So when I look at things today and I see stuff that comes up on social media, I see little clips that come up, I see so much end-time stuff that takes things to the extreme and gets nutty and crazy. So my reason for educating everyone is not to try to answer every question, make it. I just want you to be prepared to know how to interact with it all because it's flooding everywhere. And the more our world goes down the tubes, the more it will flood. Now mark my words, if there's some crazy great awakening in our lifetime and the world starts to improve, don't be shocked when all the post, the, the post millennial stuff comes back because that is 100% what happens. We ebb and flow with what's happening in our day and time of life and culture. So historically, 
Uh, but today, when we use the term dispensationalism, here's what you need to understand. There's, and I use the term historic intentionally, there's now various flavors of dispensationalism. There's progressive dispensationalism, which says there's not a hard separation between Israel and the church. There's some things that are for Israel, some things that are for the church, and some things that are for both. Now, the Golden Knights, not to give you a massive uh, talk on, on dispensationalism, but I want you to understand that's where the, the pre-trib view comes from. It's not me saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it's where it comes from. So how, and by the way, this is, this is the predominant likely, the predominant end times view under what you and I would know as evangelical Christianity. But it was limited to one man prior to the mid-1800s. How'd we get there? How'd we get there? Well, this is where it's important for you to understand a little bit of, of history so that we can all be somewhat gracious with one another. There's a man in, uh, over in the, the British Isles by the name of John Darby. As he reads through Isaiah, he comes to some portions where he looks at what Isaiah says and he goes, the fulfillment of what God's promising here cannot possibly be fulfilled by the church. You see, prior to this, you would have um, the dominant theological view would simply be this. In the Old Testament, God worked through Israel. In the New Testament, you see the church. So all the promises made to Israel are good for the church. And some of those, what it means uh, is some things are going to be answered symbolically and spiritually. And that's really convenient, especially in Darby's day when you have a rising of what we would use the term uh, historically called Protestant liberalism. Now, when you hear that term, don't instantly think what you see today. This is like its grandfather. Protestant liberalism was a response by theologians and pastors, primarily in Europe, but it moved to England. It was a response to, um, to all the discoveries and scientific advancement of modernity. So think about how there were things we used to think, and in, that, in those period of the 1700s and 1800s, we discovered medicine that could treat it, and the superstition went away. We discovered, we, 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 we snuffed out anybody who would say the world's flat and, the, and everything revolves around the earth. Well, no, the world's round and it revolves around the sun, and our sun is a part of a galaxy. We're not the center of the, right? Like, there were these advances. With this came, um, it, those things are good things. But like anything, you can mix, you got good and bad mixed in. And so there was a response in the midst of all of this scientific advancement that was blowing away everybody's mind and things that were all of a sudden causing, um, that were causing superstitions to crumble, there was a response then to take some of that same framework and put it to Scripture. And so things like this would happen. Well, Scripture cannot be inerrant. It can't be without error because it's scientifically impossible for a body of water to part in two and walk across dry land, which either means Scripture's wrong or it's, a, or it's a symbol, symbolic or there's a naturalistic explanation that's not quite as fascinating as we've all thought about it. Hence, it was just a small ankle-high body of water and strong winds blew the water back and they walked across, you know, essentially a dried-out swamp. Things like that. 
And it would go and range, again, range different theologians, different, different areas. It would range uh, even to, well, Jesus can't possibly be resurrected because scientifically you can't rise from the dead. Now, here's what's crazy. Those scholars of Protestant liberalism, by and large, most of them were writing things that undermined the entire credibility of the Bible. They would say, you can't trust the Bible. They thought they were saving Christianity from obscurity, from being tossed out to the side as culture turned to all science all the time, modernity and the promise, and look how modernity is making life better. And did modernity make life better? Yes. You want to know why certain diseases declined? It's because we got plumbing and sanitation and, and, and non-dirt floors and... Like, there are good things about modernity and scientific advancement. So all of this is taking place. And if you look, and if every promise made of, of Old Testament Israel is symbolic and, and this and that, well, that's really easy for this group to take. And so this is, this is a little bit of my conjecture here. John Darby was, was looking not only at Scripture going, wait a minute, I can't square this. He was also living in a cultural moment where there were real challenges to the faith. And so he begins to work, and he ultimately uh, will, will be the one who writes out all, you know, he, he's the originator of dispensationalism. This whole framework of looking at Scripture, the framework that's marked by biblical literalism, meaning that we're going we're gonna to interpret Scripture literally according to the normal rules of human grammar and language. Well, you and I would agree with that, by the way. It's called the historical grammatical method. He would look at progressive revelation, that in the Old Testament and the New, as you look at Scripture, God is further and more and more revealing Himself. Well, that is a true statement. There's a reason Paul calls it the mystery of the gospel. Mystery meaning something that wasn't revealed that now is revealed. There is a progressive revelation that's tied to the story of salvation. But there's there'll be this hard line between Israel and the church. And, and when it comes to eschatology, the tribulation's a time for Israel, so it's necessary to remove the church. So he writes all this. It ends up coming to America through a guy named James Ingalls. It hits America as what I just shared about Protestant liberalism is starting to attack the seminaries, and especially on the East Coast. So there is a turning to this. Uh, one, a pastor in St. Louis by the name of James H. Brooks will see, get a hold of dispensational teaching, and he will go, man, we've really got to help our pastors and our people understand this. So he will found something called the Niagara Bible Conference. At that conference, um, there, there will be someone tied by the name of C.H. McIntosh who is going to have a massive influence on Dwight L. Moody, the most powerful preacher of the 1800s the Billy Graham of his century. Dwight L. Moody will be a massive proponent of this. He is preaching to, to people in the tens of thousands. He will be part of establishing Moody Bible Institute, which would promote theological dispensationalism. The Bible Institute of Los Angeles, which we would know as Biola, would promote dispensationalism. The Philadelphia College of Bible would teach dispensationalism. This same James Brooks influences through the conference a man by the name of Cyrus Schofield, who not only is a fan of dispensationalism, but is a hardcore fan of pre-tribulation view of the rapture, the removal of the church. Schofield is going to put together the Schofield Study Bible, the most prominent study Bible of its day, where in the footnotes, as you're reading all this confusing stuff in Revelation... He's giving you answers. 
Now, I'm not knocking, but his answers are going to be in line with dispensation. Well, as that goes out throughout, and, and there's a lot that really makes sense. People are going to read it. That becomes more and more the dominant view. People are hearing it from the, the best of the preachers. They're, they're getting it in their study Bibles. Um, as time continues to move on, uh, Schofield, I believe it's Schofield, will encourage two brothers, Lewis Sperry Schaefer and Roland Schaefer, to establish a, a to establish the Evangelical Theological College, which they do in 1924, primarily for the purpose of promoting and teaching and creating pastors equipped as dispensationalists. You and I know this school by another name because they changed the name a few years later to Dallas Theological Seminary. And so, you know, and, and Dallas Theological Seminary would go on to produce men like Charles Feinberg, J. Dwight Pentecost, who wrote scores of commentaries. My grandfather gave me most of his library. I have so many commentaries by Pentecost. John Walverd, Charles Ryrie, who would write the Ryrie Study Bible. Anybody have a Ryrie Study Bible? That's half the room. Your study notes are going to be from a dispensationalist perspective. Not me telling you don't read them. Just I'm, and, and, it, this is this is we're, we're being informed here. Uh, not only that, but a man by the name of Hal Lindsey. Anybody know what book he wrote? Late Great Planet Earth sold over ten million copies. It specifically advocates for a premillennial dispensational pre-trib view of the end times. Now, all of this, all of this is taking place over multiple decades. All of this is taking place, though, as the battle over Protestant liberalism has shifted in America to what we call the fundamentalist modernist controversy, which really blew up with the Scopes monkey trials when we put evolution on trial. And the jury found that you should be able to teach creationism in the schools and that evolution was crazy, but public perception because of the skill of the, uh, the pro, uh, I believe the, process, the, 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 the defender, because it was the teacher on trial, um, he made William Jennings Bryan, who was very near to death and no one knew it, look very unlearned and foolish. And it created this schism that, and it created, it created this schism that Christianity is is not intellectual. Secularism is. Not only that, but because this was coming from our, our secular institutions, and not just secular institutions, but by this point in the 1920s, many of our historic seminaries, and, and, and you, know, you read about Harvard and, and Brown and Cornell, all of these were established by churches, and for many years were wonderful. By this point, they've become corrupted by Protestant liberalism. So there is now not only is this how the world views those who had hold to a literal, you know, to a literal interpretation of the Bible. Not only that, but amongst many of the lay people who are in this camp, there now grows an anti-intellectualism, which means there is an overhyping independence on emotionalism. So two things happen: the world looks at Christianity as intellectually foolish, and in our own Christian circles, we begin to dumb down and not ever talk about the intellectual side of Christianity. And by the way, the, the ramifications of that, we are still feeling the effects of in our lack of discipleship in churches to this day. Now, this is a much bigger history lesson than you anticipated on getting tonight, and I'm sorry we haven't cracked open the Bible. I promise we will, but it's important you understand all this because what happens is 
the fundamentalists, what we would maybe use the term conservative Christianity today, there is a unification, and one of the key markers of unification is dispensational end times theology. So I tell you all this to say, when it comes, the reason why for some, why does when I say the term rapture, for most of us, the term rapture doesn't mean simply the church getting taken up by Jesus. It specifically means the church getting taken up by Jesus before seven years of tribulation. Why is it that that's because this is how thoroughly a dispensational view was disseminated to most all of us if you came of age and grew up in a Baptist Bible or Pentecostal tradition? This is uh, the view of Tim LaHaye, who through the writer Jerry B. Jenkins wrote the whole Left Behind series. Now, I simply say all that to say, and as I did digging on just trying to understand the simple history, because it's an interesting thing, right? The majority of American evangelical um, believe the Bible's true believers believe in a pre-trib rapture as far as our conversation of when does the rapture occur. But historically, you don't really find any believers espousing a pre-trib rapture until the mid-1800s. Now, I'm not trying to hint by that that it's wrong. Just, I'm, I'm just that quite, how did we get to that? It's important to understand that, and it helped me understand that the reason for some why the fact that if I were to say, hey, I, I really, as I study Scripture, I think Scripture's clear. There's, there's a, some form of seven years of tribulation. There's a literal Antichrist who strikes a peace treaty with it. Israel, all of that seems really clear in Daniel. Um, we know the Lord is absolutely going to return. It's a literal return. It's a bodily return that the saints were resurrected. We get glorified by... But the reason when I look at Scripture and I say, man, as I study and as I look at all the language and I do it in the Greek and I look at this and I compare this, I just, I lean and I'm more comfortable with a post-tribulation rapture. And by the way, I'll own, my, I'll own, that's where I land presently. I'll also own that this stuff is so far deep. My dad the other day said, my best advice to you when I was talking to him a question, he said, my best advice, get out of Revelation as fast as you can and don't go back for 30 years until you've had three decades to further answer all your questions. <laughs> Um, and he said, and I said, well, that's why I've never done it, but this is where God led us, and I'm confident of that, so we're doing it as best we can. Um, and I'll cling to what uh, Daniel says and what was told to Daniel in chapter 12, that all of these events will become more clear the closer we get to them. But for some, if I were to say that, oh my goodness, pastor, you're, you're, one of the, you're, you're a progressive heretic. The, doing this historical backdrop helps me understand because so much of how dispensationalism came out was in the fires of we're standing against heresy. So for some, it's very personal. And I say that to say as we come back next week and walk through more of what are the pros and cons, what are the scriptural for the different views of the rapture, that's why my aim is not to try to convince you I'm right and you're wrong. Now, I'll tell you where I land because it's obviously going to be easier for me to tell you why I think I land where I land. I just, I, I, I'll own it. It's going to be easier for me to tell you what I think are the weaknesses of the other position. It's the way we all are. But my aim is not to convince anybody. My aim is to educate because we need to be, you, you need to be aware. And from a pastoral perspective, here's my aim. I want you to be able to know how to interact and be able to disseminate and not get distracted by nutty theology that's out there. That's part of it. Because there's some stuff that if you read out there, it's going to scare you silly. And as you're scared, you're going to fail to be faithful to finish the course God's charted for you. So 
that's why I mentioned one time, right? There's someone on social media. Did you know end times prophecy is being fulfilled today? The Euphrates is drying up. What well, is true? The Euphrates is kind of drying up right now. But if you read Revelation, the Euphrates River doesn't dry up till right before Jesus comes back. Well, we, we're not there. <laughs> In any of these views, we're not there. So I want you to know how to interact with that. I want you to know how to interact with your children and your grandchildren on that because what I've discovered is um, there's, there's an, just like there's an insane amount of liberal heresy on, on social media, there's an insane amount of crazy end times theories everywhere. If you go through my, 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 my saved things, there's three things you'll find theologically I save posts of. Things that are really progressive, I save them so I can be able to know how, what's being said and how to address it. Um, there is a rise in, in evangel like evangelistic Catholicism amongst some young people on social media, so I keep tracks of that. Uh, and three, crazy end times stuff that scares people stiff. I want you to be able to know how to interact with that. Also, and, I, and I'll say this pastorally, listen, I land post-trib. I hope, someone told me, well, pastor, I disagree with you. I'm, I'm pre-trib. And I said, that's great. And I hope when Jesus comes back and you're right, I will 100% look at you flying in the sky and say, you were right and I was wrong. And I'm glad you're right and I'm wrong. But what I ought to make sure for all of us who are truly in Christ is let's say it's October and war in the Middle East has broken out and it looks like it's about to end life as we know it. And all of a sudden somebody steps up and gets Israel and all the Arab nations to sign a peace treaty for seven years. And all of a sudden, we don't see some massive disappearance of any Christians on planet Earth. I want to make sure that does not crumple anybody's faith. Because if we are to go through the tribulation, it will take all the strength of faith in the Lord at His Word and His grace to walk through it. So, again, you go, well, Pastor, we're not going to get there because it's pre-trib rapture. That's great. I hope you're right. I just want to be able to own honestly so you don't think I'm trying to con you into anything. We're going to walk through it. I want to be gracious about it because there are some who feel super. In fact, this is one of the reasons young people like myself, we don't want to talk about the end times because we don't want to hack somebody off needlessly. But it is good to look at it, to talk about it. It does help us realize all of us, including some of the great men that, that were mentioned here as theologians, we are all in some ways product of our times. And the challenge as we come to Scripture is always to seek to know what God said and and to be careful to not overread our times or discussions into it. The point of the matter is this. It's three to four basic views about when Jesus comes back for His church. And here's how we're going to end tonight. We may wonder when He comes back. There is no question He comes back. That's the key. And he doesn't just come back spiritually. He comes back in his resurrected body. If we're alive, we get caught up and, and transformed in the sky. If we've died, we get caught up first in resurrected bodies. No matter if your body was cremated or buried, if it's in the ground, the sea, the volcano, your soul's getting reunited with your body and it's going to be 33 years old in prime condition because that's what Jesus' body looks like according to the early church. By the way, that's not a thus saith the Lord. That was just early church speculation, but it's fun to think about. Maybe it's 35. I don't know, but it won't be 35 with low back pain from having collapsed to the floor from tweaking a muscle on Monday. It'll be a flawless body. We'll see Jesus. Look at this Sunday face to face. 
It's an unbelievable statement, by the way. And even regardless of if the millennium is, is literal, which I think it is, or if somehow we missed it and it was in the age of the church, or if it's something that no position has even captured yet, we're going to be with Jesus and we're going to reign and lostness will win no more. And death will die. That's a great thing. Why? Because Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you and I will come that you may be with me. That's what we rest. It was a great little statement I read today. It said, in, 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 it is in a Bible dictionary, it said, um, perhaps the reason the Bible gives so little, and it's, it's of the position that, you know, there's a literal thousand years, it said, perhaps the reason the Bible gives so little to the 1,000 years is because God doesn't intend for our hope to be anchored in a thousand years. God's the anchor of our hope is in the new Jerusalem for all eternity, which is what is undeniably clear. And that's where our hope resides. And that's what spurs us on in the midst of whatever 2024 brings. And by the way, when Jesus discussed this with his disciples, when they were peppering them with questions, Matthew 24 and 25, what will be the sign of the times, Lord? And he says all these things, things that when you discuss broader end times, there's all different opinions. He gets to the very end of all of it, Jesus does. And he makes this statement. It's the very end of all of it. And he says this, but when the son of man returns, will he find faith? Or you could translate it faithfulness on the earth. Our job in this place is not to know every question of the mystery of biblical prophecy and to try to pin down and say, this is exactly when it happens. Our job is to be anchored on the fact that it does happen and live a life that is faithful today to finish the course God has called for us. And not one of us in this room, regardless of age, body ache, mental capacity, whatever, gets to check out early. We finish the course. We run the race. And when we see him face to face, oh, the joy Well done, good and faithful servant. That's where we anchor. So, glad I already got next week's lesson prepared. Come back, and we'll uh, we'll dive more into the actual biblical precedent for the various views on the rapture. What are the what are the the things that each view does well? What are the things that are questions that they leave us with? Appreciate you, church family. Excited if if this last Sunday was our introduction to our eternal home. This Sunday is uh, God's going to take us take us on a walk through through it, and it is incredible. So excited to see you Sunday as we walk through and anchor in our hope. Uh, Let me pray. Uh, Just so grateful for all of you, and uh, for uh, just I I remind y'all as much as I remind myself, he hadn't come back, which means there's still work to do, and he's not scared about accomplishing it through us. We just got to be in step with him. Let's pray, Father. Thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for um, the example of, of of godly men and women that have preceded us, and and thank you for the warnings of ungodly men and women that we have seen uh, proven to be false, and and further drives us, Lord, to trust you and to depend upon you. 
Father, may for all of us, um, there's a lot out there that's scary. There are certain things that we can discover that make it extra scary. Here's the reality, Lord, you do not intend. You know these are frightening days for us as humans. But you don't intend for us to live this life driven by terror. You intend for us to live this life driven by joy-filled hope. And Lord, our hope is anchored in the fact that we may discuss, we may have fun debate with each other, we may rib each other about when you come back for us. Oh, but Lord, we can all rest and praise and worship you for the fact that, Jesus, you're coming back for us. And this is not my home. You're preparing my home. And not only are you preparing my home, but Lord, all of us in you right now, you are preparing us for that home. So, Father, may we not get distracted, but may we humbly walk with you in a, in a hunger to know you, to love you, to follow you, to submit to whatever way you are forming us. Because as you prepare us here, you're preparing us for that place where it delights you to reward us. So, Father, may we not waste the life you've allowed us to have this side of heaven. May we not do it as individual brothers and sisters in this room, and may we dare not do it as a church. May we run the race. May we as individuals finish the course. May we as a church run the race, and as some of us finish the course, may we be faithful to pass the baton to a next generation that will keep running the race, that the baton will be passed until you return. Oh, you're good, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. It's mind-blowing that you do. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.